If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 12, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ has it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think this morning about transformation, and as we hear from your word about um, what transformation is, why it's important, I pray that we would be transformed. Lord, I pray that this would not just be an inquiry or uh, an information uh, session on the word transformation, and then we leave here just having filled our minds with something new. God, I pray that your spirit would change our hearts. That's really what we're about. That's really why we're here. And uh, that is really your goal for our lives and for this church, is that we would be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And we pray that for our children now as well. God, as they hear your word taught and and as they um, answer questions about um, your, your word and, and who you are, I pray, God, that these things that they are learning and hearing would take root in their hearts and would lead to their transformation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We like TV shows about transformation. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe you don't. I like TV shows about transformation. The Biggest Loser... Hoarders, <laughs> Addicted, have you seen that one? Um, extreme Home Makeover. I like these kind of shows. A lot of people like these kind of shows. There's a reason why there's 14,000 seasons of The Biggest Loser and Extreme Home Makeover and, and you know, Hoarders has like eight, ten seasons on Netflix. And There's a reason why these shows are popular because we'd love to see people's lives transformed. We love to see things go from, from gross to clean, from disgusting in, in, in one sense to beautiful, or the biggest loser from, you know, out of shape to in shape. We love to see that. In the past two weeks, we've been preaching through our church's vision statement. This will be the third sermon in that series, and today I'm going to address the third phrase of our vision statement, to see lives transformed. Because we exist to exalt Christ, we strive to see lives transformed. The first week, uh, Chet preached on because we exist to exalt Christ. He demonstrated from Colossians 1 that Christ is, by his very nature, first 
over all things. In fact, all things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. And therefore, we live our lives in a way that puts Christ on display as supreme Lord of all. Then last week, we looked at the two little words, we strive. And we saw that God has called us to spend our lives and to be spent for the good of others and the glory of God. This means that the Christian life will not always feel like our best life now. And we may not always see immediate benefits to our striving. But striving is what God has called us to do. But today, we have to ask the question, striving for what? Striving toward what? When we say that God has called us to strive and to work hard and to spend ourselves, what are we supposed to be aiming at? The first sermon partially answers that. We're to be aiming at the exaltation of Christ. That's the vertical dimension. But what about the horizontal dimension? How does our vision statement really translate into your life and the lives of those around you? I mean, look around. You're surrounded by Christ followers who are supposed to be aiming at the exaltation of Christ as well. But what does that look like in the life of our church? Because if my life is meant to be spent for me and your life is meant to be spent for you, then anyone, everyone will sign up for that, right? None of us really has a problem with the idea that we get to reap the benefits of our own hard work. We all like that idea. In fact, that is in and of itself a good idea. After all, if you work hard, more than likely you'll be rewarded. The worker is deserving of his wages. And to a certain degree, that is what we mean in our vision statement. Our vision for Redeemer Church is to see lives transformed. And that includes my life. That includes your life. But listen again. Because we exist, because we exist to exalt Christ, we strive to see lives transformed. The lives mentioned here certainly includes your life, but it also includes everyone else sitting around you. This vision statement is not the vision statement of the elders only. It is meant to be the vision statement of every member of Redeemer Church. If you have covenanted with us in the gospel ministry, then you are meant to strive to see the lives of, the lives of everyone else around you transformed. Now, I've said transformed about 20 times already. What does it actually mean? What do we mean when we say we want to see lives transformed? Well, here in this passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the word transformed. The word is metamorpho. Of course, this is where we get the, the, the word metamorphosis, right? It's used to describe the inner renewal of the mind accompanied by resistance to the influence of the world. So it's an internal change. The word is mentioned here in 2 Corinthians and in Romans 12. In Romans 12, we are instructed to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, the distinction that we want to keep in mind this morning as we talk about transformation is that we are primarily talking about an inward change of heart 
not an outward behavioral modification. In other words, when we say we want to be striving to see lives transformed, we are emphasizing the transformation of the heart. This means we have our work cut out for us, right? We're not just supposed to be making lists of Christian activities and holding those lists up as the standard for transformation. We are primarily interested in the change of the heart. So, I want to start this message with a challenge. Usually we save the challenges for the end. But I want to start this message with a challenge. I want you to ask yourself, what are you striving for? What are you aiming at? I start this way because I really believe this question cuts to the core of my message. This question hit me this week like a ton of bricks. Because the Holy Spirit has been revealing to me areas, many areas of my life where I am not striving to see lives transformed. Sure, I'm striving. I, I could say that I'm striving. I work hard. I think, I think hard. I, I, I stay up late and I get up early. I'm striving a lot. But most of my striving is meant to reap rewards that are, be spent, are to be spent on me. But what if your life is meant to be spent for someone else? What if God has called you to wear yourself out so that other people's lives would be transformed? Before we answer that question, we have to ask another question. Why transformation? Why did we choose that particular word for our vision statement? Why is our horizontal aim spiritual transformation rather than something else? Why aren't we trying to get as many people to pray the sinner's prayer or to get everyone into small groups or accountability groups or to simply get people to sin less? I mean, isn't that our goal? Just to get people together so we can sin less? Isn't that what the Christian life is all about? Well, take comfort. Our aim, hear me, our aim our goal is not to get people to sin less. Behavior modification is not our goal. Now, a couple caveats. It doesn't mean that we don't care about sin, right? It doesn't mean that we want people to persist in sinful behavior. We don't. But if we focus on the symptoms of sin, the outward manifestations of sin, rather than the root cause... We will spend our lives covering ourselves with bandages, not realizing that cancer is eating away at our bones. But if our aim is spiritual transformation, then that will necessarily result in sin being defeated, right? We have to go for the root cause. A lot of people can commit, can stop committing certain outward sins, right? With enough willpower, personal discipline, a man can stop viewing pornography or stop sleeping around or stop drinking to excess or stop verbally abusing his wife, at least to a certain degree. In fact, this is what the modern psychological movement is all about, isn't it? You struggle with some kind of deviant behavior? Just learn some coping skills. 
Once you figure out how to work the coping skills, you'll be able to either stop or at least control that negative behavior, right? Isn't that this is what we are told? Are you prone to angry outbursts? Just count to ten. Take deep breaths. Listen to soothing music. Go work out. Remove yourself from the situation. Draw a picture. Write a letter. Sing a song. Chant a mantra. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Bandage, bandage, bandage. Meanwhile, the cancer just eats away at the inside because the real root issue is not being dealt with. Modern psychology cannot address the real problem. The reason we struggle with some kind of negative behavior, what we call sin, is because we are born with wicked hearts. We desire to live outside of the authority of our creator and set up ourselves as our own authority. We love ourselves instead of loving God. Jesus says it this way, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Notice that list of sin. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Seven things. Six of those are committed outside of us. Evil thoughts are inside, but everything else is committed with our bodies, with our hands, with our eyes, with our mouths. Which means the sinful behavior that we display is really rooted in our hearts. The problem is, our real problem is not that we do bad things or think bad thoughts, but that we have bad hearts. So I'm setting this up this way because, remember, we're answering the question, why transformation? Why transformation and not behavior modification? Why are we aiming at transformation? Well, let's look at this passage. Let's look at verse 18 in 2 Corinthians 3. I know we read that whole passage there, but we're really going to be zeroing in on verse 18. We're going to be kind of moving outward from there, um, even on down into chapter 4 in a little bit. But look at verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, And we all with unveiled face. Now, what does Paul mean when he describes this transformation in terms of having an unveiled face? Well, we see that we are in need of transformation because we have been given a veil of deception. But before we can understand that, we have to understand how this passage fits into the whole of 2 Corinthians. So real quick, we're going to talk about chapter 1, chapter 2, and then get to our passage. Now, in this letter, Paul is trying to defend himself against false... um, False teachers. So Paul and Silas and Timothy were traveling all over, and they were preaching and teaching, and along behind them came false teachers, and they were trying to discredit what they were saying. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians, is really defending his ministry and his message. Okay. So in chapter 1, one of, the, one of the charges that these false teachers were laying against him was, look at Paul. He said he was going to come visit you, Corinthians. He didn't come. He didn't show up. 
He's vacillating. He doesn't, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's not letting his yes be yes and his no be no. How can you trust this man? So Paul spends most of chapter 1 saying, or explaining to them why he didn't come to them. You know, and, and the point is that the Lord changed his direction. The, he was doing God's will, and he, he wasn't letting, not letting his yes be yes or his no be no. He was trying to be obedient to the call of God. So he explains that in chapter 1. Then we come to chapter 2, and he explains that apparently Paul had written a previous letter to them known as the severe letter, which had caused them some pain. Now, this letter is not 1 Corinthians. Okay? It's a different one that we don't have. But he goes on to explain that he wrote the letter not to hurt them, but because of his great love for them. Then he finishes up chapter 2 saying, We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So there we see again he's trying to defend himself and his ministry against the false teachers who are trying to turn the Corinthians against him. Then we come to chapter 3. We see apparently Paul was being attacked because he had no letters of recommendation. His opponents apparently carried letters as their credentials, kind of like we do. You know, you somebody writes you a reference as you move on to another job or a new, a new place. They, they did kind of the same thing. They had letters that they would carry around um, explaining who they were. Maybe they had a, you know, a Master of Divinity degree they would pull out and say, look at this, you know, I'm qualified. Paul is not. Where are Paul's letters of recommendation? In the beginning of chapter 3, Paul explains his response is that he doesn't need letters of recommendation because the Corinthians themselves are his letters of recommendation. He says to them, if you don't trust me, if you have doubts about my ministry, don't ask me for letters of recommendation. Just look at the work that God is doing in your own hearts. They themselves were supposed to be Paul's letters of recommendation. In verse 6, he says he's a minister of a new covenant, a covenant not of the letter but of the Spirit. Okay? And there is where he begins to make this distinction between the letter of the law and the Spirit, the old covenant and the new covenant. If the Corinthians are his letters of recommendation and the work God is doing in them is the work of the new covenant, how is the new covenant different from the old? What is it that sets Paul's ministry apart from the ministry of the Judaizers. He begins to explain the difference in these in verses 7, uh, 7 through 11. He says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So the old covenant being represented here by Moses, Paul says, was a glorious covenant. It was so glorious that when Moses received the law and then went out to stand before the Israelites, they could not even look at his face because it shone so brightly. The glory of God was being displayed in the face of Moses. 
But what was the result of this old glorious covenant? Verse 9 calls it a ministry of condemnation. The law, in this case, the Ten Commandments, even in all its glory, could only bring condemnation. This is because the law is only able to establish a standard of holiness in order to reveal the wickedness of our hearts. But that's it. You see, the law has no redeeming power. The law shows us what we need to do and who we need to be, but it gives us no power to do those things or be that person. The law still is good. And it functions exactly the way God intended it to function. Yet it has no redeeming power. So the point of verses 7 through 11 is simply this. If that old covenant that brought condemnation was accompanied by so much glory, then we can be sure that the glory of the new covenant, the covenant that Paul and Timothy were preaching, will greatly surpass it. That's Paul's point. If the old covenant was glorious, how much more glorious is the new covenant going to be? And this brings us up to our passage, starting in verse 12. Since, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So, Paul tells us, just like Moses had a veil over, to cover his face in order to shield the glory of God from the Israelites, they still have a veil over their hearts when the Old Covenant is read. The Israelites could not gaze at the glory of God because their minds were hardened to Moses' message. When they heard the law, they heard only condemnation. So why have we framed our vision statement to include transformation, spiritual transformation? Because we are in the same situation that the Israelites were in. Living according to the letter of the law will only leave us condemned. We will never be able to defeat the power of sin with our own willpower. Sure, some of us could probably muster up enough self-discipline, enough coping skills to restrain some of our negative behavior. But when it comes to the power of sin, the law offers no hope. So the veil that Paul is talking about here is the veil that lies over the heart of every person to keep us in spiritual darkness. It is the veil of deception put in place by the God of this world. But, and here is why the law of God is such a gift to us, the law exposes this veil. When we encounter God's holy, perfect law, this veil of deception that we all have is exposed for what it is. We are left naked in our sin and ashamed of our condition. This realization can only lead us to one of two responses. Our hearts will either be hardened like the Israelites and we will persist in our sin or our hearts will be softened and we will plead for the mercy of God. Now what does this have to do with us? Is this all just 
Old Covenant, New Covenant, how to understand the Bible, theology, stuff way up here. No. The point is this. Some of you are here. Maybe you've grown up in church your whole life. You've been around church people your whole life. You know exactly what is expected of you. You know if you can just act a certain way, not commit any big sins, if you can keep saying all the churchy phrases, then you can, con- you can convince yourself and others that your life is being transformed. But deep down you know you're trying to live up to a standard that you will never be able to meet. Now you may not be involved in fornication or adultery, but maybe your heart is overflowing with lust. You may appear to be very responsible with money and finances, but inside your heart is full of greed. You may walk around with a smile on your face, but inside your heart is full of bitterness and anger and discontentment. You see, we are interested in what's going on in our hearts, not just the symptoms of our hearts. Is there a veil of deception that still lies over your heart? Paul says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Is your face unveiled? Or is there still a veil there? Are you still deceived into thinking that you can measure up to God's law? If so, praise God, because there's good news for you today. Like I said, the law of God exposes that veil, exposes our sin so that we see it for what it is. Now, here's the good news. Transformation is still possible. It doesn't sound like good news, because if we can't, if we look at the law and we see God's perfect, holy, righteous law, that we must be perfect. No other gods before me. No idols. Don't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you lust, you've committed adultery. Don't kill. Jesus says, if you're angry, you've killed. We're all left in darkness. We are all left with no hope. But transformation is still possible. What is the means of transformation? The means of transformation is the light of the gospel. Look back at verse 18. Now, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. What does that mean, beholding the glory of the Lord? This transformation happens as we behold the glory of God. But we have a problem. We don't visibly see the glory of God the way Moses saw the glory of God. And we don't see God's glory the way Peter, James, and John saw God's glory revealed in Christ on the mountain of transfiguration. We can't see it with our physical eyes. So what does Paul mean when he says that we are to behold the glory of the Lord? Well, when we skip down into chapter 4, look at chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, there's that veil again, 
It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's a veil. And how is the veil removed? What is the means whereby this veil is lifted? Paul says when they turn to the Lord, the veil is lifted. How does that happen? Chapter 4, verse 3. The veil keeps us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what is it that removes the veil? It's the gospel. The light of the gospel. The glory of God is, most, is revealed most clearly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he explains that this gospel message is good news because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is available apart from the law. This means that Christ has made a way to be reconciled to God apart from obeying the works of the law. If we failed to keep the law, which we have, then how can we be reconciled to God? The law only reveals our sin to us. It never gives us the power to defeat it. And because of our sinful hearts, we have become God's enemies, and we seek to escape his authority and set ourselves up as gods in our own little worlds. And because of this, God's wrath will be poured out on us. We deserve God's judgment and eternal separation because we've sinned against a holy and eternal God. But... When Christ came to earth as a man and lived the righteous life we never could and was crucified on the cross at the hands of lawless men, he paid the penalty for our sin with his blood so that those who trust him alone for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life will be justified in God's sight, will be counted righteous once and for all. And verse 16 says, when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When a person's heart is changed by the gospel, the veil is removed. So this unveiling happens when the good news of Jesus Christ hits our hearts and God shines a divine and supernatural light into our souls so that in an instant we are transformed from being Christ haters to Christ lovers. Now this light This light of the gospel is a supernatural, sovereign work of God that comes about through the proclamation of the gospel. So, what does this have to do with transformation? Well, what happens when we seek to be transformed through the law? We're left hopeless, right? Can't be done. We see God's standard of holiness and we say, I'm not supposed to be involved in the sinful behavior that I'm involved in. I see God's law. It's telling me that I I need to stop doing this or start doing that. And I I see that and I know it. But it seems like no matter how many coping skills I have, no matter how, how, how much I discipline myself, I still can't kill that desire in my heart. Even if we correct all the outward behavior, the lust, 
of the flesh, the desires of our eyes are still there. We are left hopeless. This is why we make such a big deal at Redeemer Church about centering everything we do around the gospel. Our Sunday services are aimed at highlighting and proclaiming the gospel. Our community groups and life transformation groups are meant to be a means of encouraging one another with gospel truths and seeking to battle against our sinful nature using the weapons of the gospel while rightly understanding the place and function of the law. In fact, our mission statement explicitly states that Redeemer Church exists to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. The gospel must be central to all that we do because transformation, the transformation of the heart, begins and is sustained by the gospel. That's key. What is the means of transformation? The light of the gospel revealed in Jesus Christ. And we understand that. We we come to believe that when we see our sin exposed by the law. And then we hear the good news. There is hope. There is a righteousness that can be ours apart from the law. And it's a righteousness that we find in Christ. Now, what is the goal of transformation? What's the purpose? What, what does Paul tell us we are being transformed into? Right? We're talking about transformation. You know, you have the, the, the hoarders. You, you've seen the show maybe. Their homes are gross and full of trash and, and worse things. Um, then you get to the end, hopefully, and it's restored. What are we aiming at? What's our goal in transformation? Look back at verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So here we see that the goal of our spiritual transformation is to become more and more like Christ. There's three things we want to notice about this transformation. Number one, it's communal. Look at the plurality, the plural nature of what Paul's saying. And we all, he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. The transformation is meant to be done together. Remember that Paul is writing to a church, not to an individual. He uses the plural to indicate that transformation is not the goal for only a select few. No one is to be left behind. All are meant to be pursuing growth and godliness and consistent Christian character. Transformation is communal. Second, transformation is convergent. What does that mean? Well, the same image, right? As we are all being transformed, we are being transformed into the same image, This is important because we all seek to be transformed into the image of God. As we do this, we have to remember there is only one image of God revealed in Jesus Christ. We don't get to decide what we want to become. 
If everyone is pursuing spiritual transformation, there will be unity. Unity of purpose, unity of love, unity in fellowship. When we grow up into the likeness of Christ, we grow together, not apart from one another. It's not like we're all individually being transformed into separate, you know, distinct believers, although that is true. We are, Jason is not Jason. Jason is not Kyle, right? It's not like we're becoming one person, but there's one image of Christ. There's one goal, right? We're all pursuing the likeness of Jesus. So transformation is communal. Transformation is convergence. There's one image. And third, transformation is progressive. This transformation happens from one degree of glory to another. This means that even though our transformation is convergent, it is not uniform. No two people will be at the same point in their spiritual transformation. Some of us here today are very young believers, just starting out in the faith, while others have been following Christ for some time. There are differing levels of maturity, differing levels of commitment and role. What matters is not where you are on the spectrum, but that you are continuing in the process. Are you being transformed? So spiritual transformation is communal. It's convergent. It's progressive. The last question I'd like to answer is how does transformation happen? We've seen the need for transformation Because we have a veil of deception. Our hearts are veiled. We need to be transformed. We've seen the means of transformation. How does this transformation happen? Or what is the means that God uses? The light of the gospel. And we've seen the goal of transformation. We're we're headed towards the image of Christ together as his body. But more practically, how does transformation happen? If you're here today and you're asking the question, okay, I get it, I get it, transformation, I want it, what do I do? How does transformation happen? It happens, as Paul says, by turning to the Lord. Have you turned to the Lord this morning? Or are you still blinded by the God of this world? You know, one of the best ways to diagnose your spiritual condition is to spend time meditating on the law of God. What happens to your heart when you hear God's commands? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. And remember... Jesus says, if you're angry, you've murdered. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you've lusted, you've committed adultery. What happens to your heart when you hear the law of God? Do you realize that you are guilty and broken and you seek the mercy of Christ? Or do you immediately try to make excuses And shift the blame or compare yourself to others in order to escape the judgment of God. 
This is one of the, the clearest ways that we deceive ourselves. When we encounter God's holy law, I don't, I don't know about you, but I am so quick to stop focusing on the law and set up someone else as the law. And somehow Hitler gets brought into this all the time, right? We always say, I mean, I'm not a perfect person, but I'm not Hitler, right? As if, like, the, we take the lowest common denominator, you know, like, oh, think of the worst guy, like, I'm better than him, as if that, like, makes us look that, really that good. I don't know why we, he always gets brought in. But we, we do that, right? We, we begin to look around and say, well, this person's involved in this particular sin. I'm not doing that. Guess I'm okay. Guess I'm being transformed, right? What is the standard of holiness? It's God's law. When you encounter this holy law, what is your heart's response? Is it brokenness? Is it turning to the mercy found in Christ? Or is it hardening? Do you persist in your sin? Do you make excuses for it? Try to remove yourself from that accountability. Let today be the day that you turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Our prayer this morning is that the veil that lies over your heart would be removed. How does this transformation happen? By turning to the Lord. And second, you become what you behold. If you don't get anything else out of this message, get this truth. This is huge. You become what you behold. This is a precious truth of life, a biblical truth. You become what you behold. Whatever we spend our time looking at will eventually determine who we become. Now, I don't just mean what we look at with our physical eyes, although there is truth to that. Okay? If you spend your time looking at things that are sinful, if you spend your time viewing, and I mentioned pornography already, I want to mention it again, but I'll mention it again. Uh, if you view that countless hours, hours and hours, you will become what you see in those pictures. Maybe not outwardly, but you'll be, your, your heart will be changed by that. But more importantly, we become what we behold with our spiritual eyes. Whatever we spend our time thinking about and meditating on will determine what we become. Whatever you love is what you will become. Think about that. What do you love? What drives you? Is it money? Is it a degree? If transformation into the image of Christ is our goal, then we must retrain our minds to behold His glory revealed in His Word. So, if we're going to become what we behold and we want to behold Christ, where is Christ most clearly revealed? In the Scriptures, right? In the Scriptures. We go to the Scripture. We meditate on God's Word. 
we, we sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word. We meet together with believers and we talk about it. We, we, we invite others into our lives to preach the gospel to us over and over and over to keep us going back to that gospel truth because we're always going to be tempted to continue to place ourselves under the law as, if, as, as a way to earn God's favor. We need one another. We need the community. Remember, transformation is communal. We need one another to infiltrate our lives with gospel truth. You become what you behold. Now, I'd like to end by restating my original challenge. And this goes along with Chet's sermon last week. What are you striving for? Remember, this transformation. Can we go back to the vision statement real quick? This is one continuous statement. Because we exist, we exalt Christ, we strive. Strive for what? Strive to see lives transformed. Are you striving to attain some kind of perceived acceptance before God based on a superficial adherence to a moral code? Are you striving to better your own life by worldly standards through the pursuit of a college degree or the pursuit of a particular career path or a particular relationship? Are you striving to simply be better behaved than the person sitting next to you? Have you set other people up as your standard of holiness and then convinced yourself that you are growing in godliness simply because you don't commit the kinds of sins other people commit? Or are you striving to see lives transformed? You see, that takes time. That takes effort. That takes intentionality and genuine care for the soul of the person sitting next to you. Your life and your effort is meant to be spent for the good of others and the glory of God. So let's recommit today to strive to see the lives of our brothers and sisters transformed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our goal, our goal is to exalt Christ. And Lord, how we do that in this church is to strive to see lives transformed. God, I thank you that your law exposes our sin. Your law reveals to us the wickedness of our hearts. And Lord, I thank you that the veil of deception can be removed from our hearts today through the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would call sinners out of darkness now into your marvelous light that you, Father, would be their joy and their hope of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.